0: Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm gonna be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. Thanks for joining me very excited to kick off with an Australian artist who I've admired for a very long time, David Bromley. David was born in 1960 in Sheffield, England, and immigrated to Australia with his family in 1964. He dropped out of school at 14 and fell headfirst into the school of Hard Knocks. He worked as a sign writer, a postman, brickies labourer, and a potter before emerging as a painter in the mid-80s. Since then, he's become one of the most recognisable, innovative and collectible artists in Australia with widespread acclaim both here and internationally. David has many high profile fans with the likes of Lily Allen, Hugo Weaving, Kate Severano, Kendall and Kylie Jenner, amongst many other A-listers sitting for him. He's been a finalist at the Archibald Prize six times and displays extraordinary artistic energy. He experiments with a wide variety of different media, printmaking, ceramics, sculpture, and recently film, furniture, fashion, and interiors, firmly establishing himself as a truly iconic artist. I'm lucky enough to have a few of his paintings lighting up my house and to call him a friend. Please welcome to the blank canvas, David Bromley. Okay, here we go. Mate, thank you for coming on board and being the first guest for the Blank Canvas podcast.
1: My pleasure, mate. You're so handsome. 45 minutes just looking at that beautiful face. <laughs> <laughs> mate, thank you.
0: Now, look, I, this is, because it's the first one, I thought I might just say something uh, as to why I'm doing the podcast.
1: Yeah, great.
0: Um, look, 2020, it's been a pretty weird year, hasn't it? Just, yeah. Just the amount of it. bad news and fear-mongering and things going on out yeah. there. I was just compelled to think, okay, what can I do to, to help shine the light on the beautiful things, the positive things, the people yeah. that are continuing to create beauty and aesthetics yeah. despite the doom and gloom, you know, with, put I'm, a future there. I'm with you on that. And so when I thought, okay, who would I have on? Literally, you were the first person <laughs> I thought of because, you know, not only are you a, an extraordinary artist but from what I can see, having, you know, been friends and interacted with you, Um, a little over the years, it doesn't seem to matter what's happening in in the world or in your life. You just relentlessly pursue beauty and aesthetics and you try and instil that everywhere and into people's lives. So,
1: Amongst many things, I had the great fortune of an exceptional father. His sense of um, optimism was a little bit frustrating at times when I was younger. But, uh, it, you know, considering he came from, a, you know, a poor family in a industrial city of, of Sheffield where, uh, you know, lived in Matchbox by cider gutter <laughs> or oh, lemonade. I mean, we had lemonade once a year. That was just water with a bit of lemon squeezed in it. <laughs> wow. But um, he uh, had a fabulous gaze and... As he said, when, you know, he was close to the end, you know, I've never been bored for a minute in my life. And But, you know, we also used to watch The Goodies and uh, Monty Python and I think always look on the bright side of life was something that uh, it's almost like it's inserted inside of me. So it's not just always look on the bright side of life. It, the tune and everything goes with it, you know, and John Cleese yeah. singing it and walking funny and stuff. So, wow. yeah, I think it's that.
0: That's beautiful sort of thing. It's yeah. a, it's really coming from another era, isn't it, when we didn't have the political, you know, the political incorrectness that we have right now. It seems to be such a straitjacket on comedy and art. How, I, I, how do you cope with that?
1: Um, mate, I'd probably spend a good portion of my life with both feet firmly stuck in my mouth. Look, I just, you know, I've definitely got a bit of Jim Carrey. He just comes out and, you know, I try not to... Um, think too much about, you know, my capacity for saying stupid things. But I'll I'll watch, you know, a stand-up comedian like Dave Chappelle or I'll watch a thing on, um, you know, on the end of the world by, holy shit, I forget names. It'll come up sometime. And I just love people who just grab things and take the absolute piss. I think also too, you've got to be incredibly careful to be able to read people better than what just comes out of their mouths, you know, their body language, a certain sort of something that they have about themselves. You know, I see some people talking and I just think, you don't mean a single fucking thing that you say. You know, I can see your mouth saying something or you're trained or you're educated in a certain way. And, you know, you may come across well and someone might sort of take you for that sort of person. And then you get someone who's a little bit looser or is a bit of a rough diamond or hasn't been taught the etiquette. And they may say something which you may think, you know, they're misogynistic or, you know, their their, you know, their values are really bad or whatever. And yet you probably wouldn't get a kind of person. So yeah, to the earth. yeah. I oh, think yeah. I think people have got to probably try and evaluate a little bit more and have a little bit more understanding about what it is. You know, get to know a person before they, you know, shoot them down in flames. But also too, you know, this sort of era of outrage. Mate, surely you've got to do the maths and work out, you know, what's actually working. I mean, at times I think society's going to hell in a handbasket. So where's all this outrage actually getting us? Yeah. You know, versus a time when perhaps you know I've been on the end of some pretty destructive constructs within society, and had my teeth knocked out and been bullied. For, you know, the the list goes on and on a cop would pull you over and headbutt you because the horn of your car wasn't working and it's things like that that, you know, there were some terrible components about it but I'm not really sure that we're getting it any better and I think that's where we just need a broader, I think, understanding of what all of these words mean like tolerance and stuff but, I mean, once sense of humour goes, I think we're screwed and, you know, I think one of the greatest sort of poets and wordsmiths in the history of the world was Lou Reed, if there's war between women and men, there'll we know people left, <laughs> you know. So I think we've got to be as careful of getting it all right um, as opposed to getting it all wrong. It's like eating and all of those sorts of things. I think one thing that will kill you sooner than anything else is pure terror of anything you're going to put in your mouth, Yeah, you know, so.
0: Mate, I, I agree with you, Yeah. Talking about people and and you need to look and not listen at times, don't you? You need to look at the actions, hundred percent, rather than just listen to that. La, um, la, la. Yeah, totally. So um, and
1: see where it's really coming from. And I think too, have the guts to sort of challenge it and not be seen as a person that is therefore obviously so entrenched in the other side. Surely there's a situation, you know, just take one in a thousand, ten thousand different situations you're not allowed to say one single good thing about Trump. But I mean, to just completely blanket a human being, I mean, surely you're just not going to get anywhere by just, you know, he's a no-go conversation. You know, the minute his name comes up, there's all of this outrage. And that could be said about so many different things. But unless you look at the, I suppose, the minutiae a little bit more and just the very essence of certain things, I mean, You know, again, where's all this outrage got us? There's an election coming up and uh, I would have thought he'd have 10 barrels aimed at his head. But you've got a guy that at times really can't quite remember what he was doing yesterday. And I'm not saying he has, um, I, I think Biden has certain qualities about him that are, you know, really quite interesting. And as much as I find Trump probably one of the greatest comedians on the planet, you'd think it would be easy to topple a guy. But watch out, because as opposed to, you know, when he first got in, I mean, get to school, folks. <laughs> you know, get a plan and stop bloody complaining. Every moment you're complaining, he's doing all of the things that you don't want him to do. And if you hate it so much, you know, I mean, you see De Niro, who I just adore as an actor, you've just got him mouthing off and who's the other guy who's on Saturday night? Alec Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin. You know, I mean, you imagine if Alec Baldwin put together a fund for young aspiring politicians or something four years ago and just said, come on, let's get smart people. But that's the trouble. A lot of people who complain actually think they're doing something.
0: That, that's right. Instead of destroying the global economy <laughs> in all of our lives, how about just getting smarter? Getting smarter. You that's know? That's it. Yeah, that's it. Oh, all yeah. right, I hear you, mate. It's interesting, we've gone sort of straight to news. Back to the magic you create, <laughs> do you actually watch the news? How are you able oh, yeah, to create t- such,
1: um, you know, beautiful and optimistic work? Look, I think the answer is really easy and, I mean, I've been called a lightweight a million times. I've been called a, a flavour of the month for 30-odd years and, um, you know, I've had people come up to me at exhibitions and said, you know, say so this thing with the children and stuff, I just don't get it, you know, there's nothing of any substance in it. And I'm like, so there's no substance in innocence, (laughs) but, you know, basic joy. Are you fucking kidding me? And then someone will come up to me and go, um, oh, geez, it's really nice. It's really refreshing. And the person that's just told me that my work has no value and I just say, just excuse me for a second. I'm just going to have a bit of a chat to this person because if you don't get it, well, why am I supposed to explain to you? I think it is one of the most important things. I've been through some major shit in my life and I've come so close to the bone many a time. And, you know, people have actually said to me, you know, why don't you paint what happens to you? I mean, I personally will talk about anything. (laughs) I've been through some pretty sort of stock standard, you know, falling off cliffs and things metaphorically. And I've never painted that sort of thing because I just don't actually think I'd be very good at it. I mean, I I was watching a documentary on Whiteley the other night. I mean it's taken me a long time, but I'm there. What a bloody genius. Just absolutely utterly remarkable. I love all the hard edged stuff, but I don't know. I just think I've got another job to do in my life. And when I sort of, you know, is it the Ramones and then Tom Waits, you know, I don't want to grow up. There's a little bit of that. Am I avoiding it? No. I got a bunch of kids. I lost my brother, I lost my father, I lost my mother. 80% of the kids that I grow up with are in jail, psych wards, or dead. And I've seen some pretty tough stuff. And I think one of the most important things to do is to take it on with beauty, a certain idealism. When I first started making art, you know, decorative. Bad word, nostalgic, bad word, <laughs> happiness, bad word, decorative, bad word, craft. And I just took those five and built a career. <laughs> <laughs> and I love it. I love uh, it.
0: Yeah. That is gold. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because it seems – Seems to me when you look at so many artists, it seems easier to get attention when you just let the demons spill out onto whatever work you're doing. You seem to get more noticed, you get more critical acclaim, all of that stuff. But to resist that and continue to create beauty and aesthetics and things that uplift people, it's almost harder to be successful at doing that stuff. Yeah,
1: look, it's interesting. I I mean, the other thing that I threw into the sort of minestrone was, you know, commercialism you know, which was supposed to be a negative thing. And, you know, even um, even Damien Hirst wrote, you know, in the big show that he had with Sotheby's, it's like Warhol didn't even exist. I mean, visually people are delighted by him, but his pure ability to be, you know, right at the forefront of popular culture was remarkable. And yet people will still follow more in sort of, you know, Philip Bacon's pathway. Um, and, you know, push those sorts of things. And I've seen it work. I've been in this game now for nearly 35 years. And I'm like, holy shit, they've bought it. The lot. You know, the trustees at art galleries, the high-end buyers, the overseas deal. So and so is a very, very deep and often got a look on their face that, you know, life is really, really harsh. Some of these crew are highly educated, incredibly articulate, intelligent human beings. But are they badasses? Are they gangsters? Are they on the cutting edge of things? Well, some of them not, and yet they've worked out intellectually that it works. And I don't even think some of them actually would even know whether they had played the game because I think they become what they consider is going to make them like a major serious artist and they become it. And I've seen some dudes who came into the scene with an incredible sense of lightheartedness and a lovely ability to play with paint, grow into people that seem like, you know, the world's such a heavy place. And I, I think some people think that's the job of an artist. Whereas if you look through history, you know, you see certain things, you know, like you get a gathering together and and say there's, you know, Rousseau is in the middle of with Van Gogh and Gauguin and Toulouse-Lautrec and they're examining their work and someone like Henri Rousseau, you know, who paints these beautiful, big, playful, colourful things is saying look at my painting, look at the big lion and the sun and stuff and I remember reading that, you know, or Alexander Calder who people said he had a studio when he was young and and had the heart and the very sort of portrayal of a child. They're, They're the great loves of my life in regards to artists but you can only be who you can be and I'm no different in that way. I mean, who I've become is definitely partly through happenstance. Well, hugely through happenstance, you know, but I certainly remember before I knew anything about art, reading about it and stuff and thinking there'd be a tremendous camaraderie in the art world. Mate, you're stuffed no matter what it is that you do and you're the one who's got to live with yourself and look at yourself in the mirror every day. You might as well give it a shot. And the amount of times I've been told that, you know, my work with the children and stuff just wouldn't fly for that long. I mean, someone tells me something won't fly, I mean that gets me in for life. Can't do this. I'm doing it, you know. (laughs) And what's my main reason? Because I it you know, I look at other people and I look, you know, is this working for you? You know, are you happy? And then someone might say, Well, you know, you're not meant to be happy, you know, you're meant to be miserable in this sort of thing. And I say to people, if you're that miserable, go and do another job that would absolutely thrill you to bits. Get under someone's house and dig out the drains, unclog their toilet, (laughs) you know, sit in a small cubicle in an office day to day. Hey, sorry for anyone out there who's listening that are in those things, because, you know, there's a lot of different ways to be happy. And I'm not saying that those things are terrible. But I think if you're an artist in and out, you know, you want your freedom. You want to be able to do what it is that you want. You want to be able to express yourself the way that you want. And I don't know, as I said, if you look at some of the really heavy things that are being portrayed and you dig a little bit deeper, you know, in my understanding of some of these people that are doing those things, some of them aren't the badasses, you know, that they appear to be. I mean, you take someone like Adam Cullen, for instance. Look, I've only met the guy twice and I found him to be absolutely charming. Some people, when they meet me and find out who I am, you know, it's sort of like, well, I'm the badass and you paint the pretty pictures. It was none of that. He was actually really quite complimentary. So all of my interactions with him have been good. You know, the two different times. I actually happen to think that his work's pretty exciting. He gets painted as a badass, you know, the enfant terrible pushing stuff to its gutsy, you know, go down in flames glory. I mean, he was picked up for having firearms in his car and he sought out a lot of different people to um, back him to say, you know, he was a gentle soul. You know, what is he, a gentle Soul, you know, or a badass. The art scene wanted to paint him as a badass. You know, I mean, I've had friends busted for guns. (laughs) They didn't go around asking people. I mean, my brother had guns buried in the back garden when I think I was 13 or something like that. I don't think he ever went out and, you know, got people to say that he was really a very sensitive soul. You know, he thought it was fantastic and good for his cred, (laughs) you know, if ever he got in trouble. But someone like Cullen sought out people to say that he was a tender soul. Well, what's wrong with telling people he was a tender soul yeah. before that? And yet he did these really wild things. And, and very, very sadly, he's not alive anymore. Whiteley's not alive anymore. Arkley's not alive anymore. As Keith Richards says, don't try this at home. <laughs> you know, don't look at me and think, I'm um, going to yeah. get through this, yeah. you know. And I know for me, I'm a gentle soul and uh, I've come from some challenging situations and I seek more beautiful and cultural, fascinating environments over and above something hard-edged. You watch the news, you know, all the time. I think as much as anything, it's just part of your learning about the very environment that you're in. Work out where maybe you should stand, and yeah, maybe where check. you shouldn't walk, and yeah. what you should be careful of. Right, that's
0: that's very especially very when you've cool, got mate. kids you. too. Yeah. No? So, well, actually, that's a good thing to uh, go to next. Talking at kids, yeah. and say you were leaving school now, um, the uncertainty of the times. If you wanted to be an artist today, what path would you take? Would you take the school of hard
1: knocks path that you essentially took, or would you go to college and be taught? I went to a local public school. I did lose some teeth and I think I developed components of anxiety from the sheer toughness and the threatening nature of it. I've been smashed in the head with a biro from one of my teachers I think the deputy head broke a tree branch, you know, off a tree on the way to his office and beat me with it. And that was just the teachers, you know. So I occasionally said to mum and dad, could I change schools? And dad's just of the thought, you know, your problems will follow you everywhere. And I'm thinking, well, can we at least try and dodge a few bullets? And it's really interesting because one of my favourite musicians, whose name is, he died last year, sort of one of the forefathers of rap. Oh, my God. Anyway, he's a bit of a bad boy and been in jail many times for smack and pushing the envelope in many ways. Oh, I can just see his face and hear the voice. Boom, boom. Anyway, he said, you know, you think if there was anywhere to hide, I wouldn't have found it. You know, there's nowhere to hide, you know. There's nowhere to run. Look, I personally, I, I've been through massive recessions. You know, I've been ripped off. I've been through the global financial crisis. To be quite honest, some of the greatest joys in my life were the beginnings of my art career when I had nothing. You know, no one cared. I was an invisible man. And certainly when I started painting, I didn't have the money for it. Like people say to me, you know, gee, the texture on your painting's is interesting. Well, I started that off by... When I finished an exhibition, I couldn't afford new canvases, so I'd paint over all the others, sometimes four times. So people would go, great texture. And i go, well, yeah, it's pretty good, eh? And it was just because I wanted to keep painting, so I'd just throw colour over it and, you know, I'd go again. Or I, if I couldn't afford paint, I'd go down the beach and I'd find old bits of plastic and stuff like that. During the GFC was a time that followed incredible abundance in the art scene gallerists were coming over and you'd put a line on a painting and they had three people waiting for it it was just like well you know i can sell that three times over you know they'd see the beginning of the face or a rowboat or something and it was sort of snatched away a lot of gallerists weren't always at work and then the gfc comes along and everyone's like okay We got to get to business pretty much like now. Friends from the fashion scene would be in Europe and the heads of big fashion labels were on the floor in the retail stores. And, you know, I, again, I was happy. I mean, you know, people would say to me, How's the art scene? I said, Well, everyone's complaining as much as usual. Complain when it's good, complain when it's bad. You know, when when everything's really good, you've got a lot to lose, you know. When the bottom drops out of it, everyone's like, I actually like this having to go to work and having to think really hard. And, you know, having a pile of paintings around that aren't is sold and may not yet. Look, I thrive on it as I have this year. I've spent far more of my life under pressure than having clear roads, you know, and anyone who knows me, if ever I have a win, I throw it into the hat and I gamble on, I get one win, I gamble it on three other projects, you know, so I have hit the most terrible times and I'd say probably some of the saddest things that have ever happened to me are people I love leaving me during difficult times and I'm not just talking about difficult times societally difficult times inside my own head, um, etc. You know, I've I've had people walk away who I've cared about very much. That part I don't like, you know, it has perhaps made me stronger. Would I have preferred to have been more on the straight and narrow and had a proper job and, you know, being able to sort of hold a family for longer or hold a wife for longer or a long-term partner for longer or something? Well, I know all of those people in those sorts of jobs too. They have bummers, they have marriage breakups, they have all of those things. As I said from this musician whose name keeps escaping me. Is it the Triple Barrel <laughs> name? <laughs> He's got three names? He's, one's a letter, one's a letter. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Black guy. Yeah, I know <sighs> what I mean. I can't think of it. It's on and TV. one of his last albums was probably one of the best in his career and it was said, I think in New York and there were guys skating in voodoo Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll Anybody out there? <laughs> we'll come back yeah. to that. and the voice of, yeah. Talking. Someone, sorry, I've just got to say something else. Some, someone said to him, you've got an ego the size of Texas. And he goes, is that big or is that small? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Love it. Yeah, yeah talking, um, talking kids and family and wives and all of that, you have seven kids, I think, don't you, at yes. last count? Yep. Okay. And... Do you think it's easier with kids growing up and going to school and leaving school, do you think it's easier for kids now or it was easier like a
1: generation or two ago? I think it's different. Um, You know, go way back in generations and people, by the way, when they see me with young kids in the park, if they bump into me in a restaurant or see me at an opening, they say, I saw you in the park today with your grandchildren. (laughs) And I don't sort of say, well, they're actually my children, but I mean, they could easily be my grandchildren. So we go up to when I grew up. I mean, my my head was an explosion of insanity. And so, you know, I can only imagine if I had to deal with what kids had to deal with now. I mean, what we played with was, you know, a pool table, which was probably about sort of 16 inches by eight inches. And seriously, I thought I was the wealthiest person in the world, I think the sheer mass of, you know, communication and, you know, I certainly remember because my mum would buy a lot of my clothes from an op shop, you know, and someone would come and laugh at my pink flared jumbo corduroy with my sort of socks showing because they were so high up. And I just remember someone had saying, look at your fucking pants, man, you know, <laughs> And I say, well, that's what we had last week. That was the budget, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, like, I couldn't even take offence because it was just like, well, it's not as if I had options and I hadn't really even thought about it. Um, you know, I know at school if you wore a pair of Levi's, I mean, it was pointless because they'd ripped the Levi tag off and you suddenly your trousers weren't sort of, um, Levi's. What was the question again? God, I lose um, myself down. No,
0: that's okay. Yeah, do, do you think it's harder for oh, kids I do, is now it harder than now? it was a couple of generations yeah, ago? Yeah, look, I do.
1: Right, Yeah, I do. Right. I do. Um, I think, to be honest, I think it's borderline unfair on kids now. My youngest children are still saying... You know, my seven and four-year-old saying, I want to be a baby. I want you to carry me around. (laughs) My, you know, now turned 14-year-old, he's come out as gay and it's better for him at this particular time. He explains to me the incredible diversity of, of people's sexuality and what it means to be pansexual and stuff. I watch a movie and I'm fully schooled by Willem and he let everyone know on Instagram you know, before he told me. So, he's got a lot of trust in me, you know, that I'll roll with him and it's working for him. Every kid's different, I think, but I just shit myself at the thought of having that amount of information in my head. Would I have been able to use a bit more information? Well, yeah, because I only knew probably about five things, but the trouble I got into with those five things was just incredible. But No, it reminds me of those little turtles, you know, they get born and then they try and make it to the ocean and every manner of swooping bird and stuff. And that seems to be something that's going to hit you at this age, at that age, at this age, at this age. I I do think things were simpler um, and I try with the kids to give them a lot of those simple things and I see the pleasure gives them. I still think an iPad though is probably the best babysitter World's ever known. Oh, my kid watches iPad twenty hours a day, and I'm like, "That's fantastic." Then they sleep and they watch the iPad. Easy. You could go on a holiday for three months and leave them there. But no, my heart goes out to them. You know, one of my mates' nephews, you know, committed suicide last week at 15 years old. I mean, my insides just about erupted. You know, it's 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 just. You know, it's just this sheer weight of of stuff. Yeah. What other word is the for it? Because it's so diverse and it's so, and you know, this sort of incredible need to be seen as something, you know, and someone feels terrible about themselves because someone said something about the size of their bum or something. I mean, when we were kids, I mean, every single one of us had the arse hanging out of our pants. You know, they were all on show. We didn't care what they looked like, you know. Oh, it's tough, man. And I feel for them and have a lot of empathy for them. And I think that's partly why I paint the old school stuff. Yeah. um, Because it's an era that is gone. It's gone. Yeah. And, And so am I terribly nostalgic about it? No, I just, I like people having it on their walls and looking at it and just taking a nod, you know, to it. Is it better to live in Swiss Family Robinson house or, you know, the big palace? Well, I don't know. Swiss Family Robinson house, I think, yeah. apart from the pirates. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Tell me how you started. I mean, it was the 70s? It was at, the at, at 80s. At, it was the 80s? 80s. So when were yeah. you living in – so you started in Adelaide. Yep. We're sort of – Going no, back no in art, time, yeah, no, no art, art there. No. Well, I,
1: I left school, I stopped going to school at 14 and and used to walk into places and and ask for work. And I think um, a couple of days before my 15th birthday, I walked into a sign writer and showed them that I'd been drawing, you know, and making up, you know, fonts and things like that. And that was the era of hand-painted signs and non-aluminum ladders <laughs> that you have to lift off an EJ panel van. Um, And I got given a job and I went into school the next day and said, I'm out. Um, And mum said to me, well, you don't start for three months, better you maybe hang around and thought, (laughs) you're funny. (laughs) And uh, I went straight into school, I said, I'm leaving. They said, well, to be honest with you, David, we thought you'd left already. But because of your age, we have to ring your mum. And they rang mum and said, uh, um, you know, we've got your son in the office. (laughs) He reckons he's leaving school. (laughs) And my mum says... If you've got my son in your office and he reckons he's leaving school, have a think about it. He might be leaving school. (laughs) He just looked at me. I got on my push bike and I rode uh, through the corridors and went and saw all my teachers and told them what I thought of them. Then I was escorted from the school. Look, not a very good start. I bumped into a a guy from school that was leaving the same day as me. He'd got a welding apprenticeship apprenticeship. or something like that. And uh, we said, okay, we're free. What shall we do? And I said, uh, maybe we could go and collect stickers. I'll never forget that. I mean, shit, I should have just walked straight back in and apologized and said, I think I need a few more years of education. And I did. I was a baby out in the world. And look, it was the onset of, you know, a really, really, really tough 10 years I just, you know, I smoked way too much weed and I drank too much and and took drugs and I was just basically eating away at my, you know, the two feet on my ground were floating off the ground and I did not handle it very well. So after sort of eight or nine years, I really was on the rubbish heap. Um, By pure coincidence, I managed to sort of stay alive and sort of maybe grow the beginnings of a brain and uh, I found that surfing without a hangover and, and stuff was really remarkable. And so basically I just surfed every day and it really helped get my brain back. And I thought, I'm sick of this cold border in South Australia. So I headed up north with the idea that basically I was now going to add around about sort of 23 after sort of eight years of really bouncing around in a pretty bad way, psychologically very unstable. And I got myself clean and basically said, I'm going to find the other half of my life, surfing's one part, and the other half of my life will be something that I do. And I don't care whether I haul bricks, I don't care what I do, but I'm going to put a passion into it. And uh, I saw a lady at a, at a market um, selling pottery and I said, how do you do this? And she said, well, there's some classes down the road, boom. Mate, I was there. <laughs> Hello, <laughs> I'm doing pottery lessons. Well, we're halfway through term. No, you're not. <laughs> um, no, we don't have a spare wheel. Yes, you do. And um, and basically, I think I've lived my life pretty much like that ever since, you know, walk into a gallery. Can I show you with you? No, you work shit. No, it's not. It's great. You know, well, bring some slides. No, I've got some in the car. I don't want to see them. I'd walk back in with them and just leave them there. And then, you know, A client would come in and ask about it and say, you know, some of my first galleries I don't even think really like my work but they sold and so, you know, they sort of began to like them and I didn't give a shit whether, the, you know, galleries liked them or not. If they liked them because they were selling then, you know, from where I'd come from, everything was good and that's what you said, you know, maybe that's why I'm so happy. Mate, I had nothing to lose. One of the easiest positions you can ever be in. I know dudes with great jobs in their 30s and 40s who have said to themselves, you know, well, how do I leave? I've got a big mortgage and I'm respected in my business. Whereas I'd walk down the street and, you know, I'd say hello to someone and like, get away. <laughs> you know, so I was the invisible man, nothing to lose, no money and um, no achievements. You know, an absolute loser. And it's really the best start, you know, as suppose to I've got an art degree or something like that, you know, it's just fantastic. And I didn't really give a shit if I went into a gallery and someone said they didn't like me. Well, people have been telling me they didn't like me for ages, kicking me in the head at school and stuff. Yeah. So, you know,
0: it's, it's amazing because, uh, as an outsider looking at you and your life and, and your career, I regard you as someone with a, phenomenal work ethic. You're just relentlessly creative 24-7 and incredibly successful. Yeah. Um, so it's extraordinary to hear about that start. It's just, it's kind of, it's another great example of somebody who is kind of on purpose with their passion and things just fly and they have never-ending energy in that direction, isn't I've, it?
1: I've had times of, you know, great success and... Um, you know, even enough where you know maybe I couldn't live on the best street, but I'd have a place around the corner from the best street. I remember going for a walk and um, I bumped into a mate of mine and uh, and he lived on the best street and uh, he just went down the window and we were talking and uh, he said to me, I, "I've just been made a QC." I said, oh, mate, that's bloody wonderful. I reckon he was also on about his third marriage with a bunch of kids from everyone. I thought, oh, that money will come in handy too. <laughs> I was pleased with him for that. But I said to him, you know, what drives you? He said, fear, you know. And I know people say fear is a really bad thing, but, you know, I mean, I, I don't want the noises in my head. I don't want that absolute cat on a hot tin roof, trying to run away from myself all the time. You know, I worked out at a certain age when I was the quintessential avoider of any work possible. You know, I mean, I would just see work and I'd run a million miles. And I realized that by doing that, my life was very heavy because I wasn't purposely using my brain and and stuff. And I I did realise when I was paddling out in the cyclone swell or something like that, I didn't really think about anything else, but making sure I didn't get held underwater for any longer than my capacity to to hold my breath. And it was pretty much like that with work. And I made myself a commitment that I was going to find something and become addicted to it. And that's it. Is it fear now? Look, probably it hasn't been that long in my life that it's not... But certainly I wanted back-to-back exhibitions all over the world, just ridiculous projects that just took me somewhere. And it's always been easier doing that than sitting alone with my brain. And I think that that's served me very well. There's no doubt that it's brought numerous problems still, my absolute. I mean, I've I've been at stages where I work 20 hours a day you know, go to sleep for two hours, get up again and do it because I actually was addicted to not having a conversation in my own head. You know, to me, it was one of the most delightful things that you could ever do was to be so busy that you were just on the edge of absolute and utter exhaustion. I found the greatest drug of all, but it can play havoc on the life around you and it can also cause tremendous um, health problems and and stuff. And, you know, I'm a bit better now, and I almost seek times of quiet or repose that I used to run a million miles from, yeah. you know. So, what well, is it? Be careful what you wish for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always love the thing with, um, um, oh God, here we go. One of my favorite musicians, Ugh, the coolest poet, died a couple of years ago, lived in a, Buddhist monastery before he died. Very handsome. Jeff Buckley? Fuck, no. no, no, he was 80 or something. <sighs> Leonard Cohen. Oh, Leonard Cohen. You know, they say to Leonard Cohen, you know, after his last stint in a, in a uh, I think there was two reasons he left the monastery. I think his manager ripped him off and he didn't have any coin. <laughs> and, you know, when he came out, people said, so has that improved the quality of your mental health from being in the monastery? He said, I don't know. I've been in there for a while this time, maybe that bit of my head just burned out. And i got to say, I think that sometimes too. I think that pure um, anxiety, you know, um, that I feel and just, you know, these thoughts that just propel me into panic and stuff, sometimes I think they're worn out. But then occasionally I have a moment where um, I do have a little bit of time to settle back and, yeah, up it comes I'm just very fortunate that my wife has more good qualities, you know, than anybody I've ever met in my life. And one of them too is I think she's worse than me.
0: <laughs> she's an extraordinary woman and from having, I guess is. I've known you for about, I don't know, maybe about 12 years or so. Yep. She's been a great influence on oh. you, hasn't she, and a, and a remarkable Life-saver. mother. Lifesaver. And the,
1: the business that you two have built together, Bromley & Co, is... ah. Uh, She's my life. I just i I don't know what I did to deserve her. Not long after my father died, I, you know, I you know was once again in the aftermath of another broken relationship, and uh, I was very lonely and and really felt pretty bad. I certainly know I had more sips on the port bottle <laughs> than I should, and you know I can remember like looking up or basically muttering. Well, it's obviously bullshit the dad's watching over me. Because if he was, maybe he could pull a couple of strings. And I love my dad dearly, but I'm sure there were a couple of fuck yous, you know, sort of like, really? You know, like if you're up there, because I I won't go into it, but it was one of the freakiest things of my life. As he was dying, he had been in the coma for about sort of six hours or something before coming through again for a few more hours and having a good chat. And he told me what happened to himself when he was in the coma. My dad was the straightest shooter you'd ever meet in your life no one could be more straighter than my dad, not straight as in uncool and not open to different ideas, but he just said it how it was. And it was very, very interesting, certainly enough for me to think that there was an afterlife. And he had seen my brother and he had seen, he was not overly cohesive because he was hanging by a thread, but he didn't mention anyone who was alive in you know who he saw and You know, he even related a conversation that I had with a friend of mine in Victoria that he could not have known about because he was in a coma, so whether he'd travelled over to my head. Anyway, who knows? I still don't, but it was enough to think that, you know, maybe they are watching over me or something like that. And as I said, I had some pretty stern words with him, you know, like, come on, what you don't love me or you don't care or do you not know what something better could be and uh, very shortly after that um, I met Yugi and so yeah maybe he didn't overly enjoy that telling off I don't know but I it, it's more than a gift um, meeting her and 10 years in I mean I I'm embarrassed at being together for like you know 14 hours every day and at the end of it we giggle like, a couple of school kids that have just met that morning. She's a joy, highly intelligent and much smarter than me. And I've given her the reins to a lot of things because, you know, I now actually quite enjoy avoiding trouble. So I usually ask her first (laughs) (laughs) before I'm about to, you know, leap before I look. I was
0: careful to CC (laughs) her when I sent you the email asking if you wanted to do it because I knew unless she
1: was on board, it wouldn't be. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, no, she's, she's, uh, she's the voice of reason. And, you know, the, one of the great things I love about her is, you know, people say, oh, so you hold David back. I mean, that would be no joy for me and that's not a good partner. Yeah. You know, she's a very exciting um, and adventurous person. When I say she's wise, she's wise enough to know that it's cliff jumping is good too. And I've seen her do some really wild things and I'm like, yep, I'm coming. <laughs> this is great,
0: hey. You that's know that's awesome. Yeah. What what are you guys um, working on now? What's um,
1: in store for the future? And well, we've done our version of consolidation. We had two very large studios, one in the city and one um in the country. And we've parted with um a studio in the city which was just about part of our DNA. And uh, it meant a huge amount to us. And it was, I think, very much part of our own persona. But there's only so many places you can be in at once. And, uh, you know, we've parted with that. So we're actually doing some consolidation. It's still a big ship. It's still pretty wild. It's very multi-dimensional. But I think we at least look at each other and we're not big at fooling each other into thinking that we have you know, straightened a path or we have got something probably a little bit right. I I think, you know, we're steering a big ship into a direction that's gonna see us, I think, probably a little less insane. I really don't like when you're on the mouse's wheel and you're running a million miles an hour and you know you're on the mouse's wheel. It doesn't matter how fascinating your work is, it doesn't matter how much you quite enjoy whipping yourself. Um, you know, those masochistic things of pushing yourself and stuff. You just think in reality, I'm just not capable of running this properly. I'm not capable of doing something with some sort of rhythm. This is like, you know, a one man band with four drums and 64 harmonicas and stuff. It's pretty wild. So we're trying to find what that is. And together, I think we pretty much know what that is. Interestingly enough, through this time, and I find these times so asymmetrical um, with what it is that's happening. But we've done over the years a lot of big, creative directing projects on building sites and stuff like massive things and greenfield developments and you know, taking giant buildings on two hectares and working with the developers and stuff to bring culture and arts and music and dance and theatre and visually beautiful gardens and stuff like that. And we've sort of tried to narrow down what it is that we work on based on people who talk big in the first place about what they want for their big vision And we've walked down a few paths with people where they love to talk about it. And we can be a little bit harsh now and just turn around and say, you don't just put us in the mix and suddenly everything becomes amazing. You know, we become a band and you've got to really push to make this remarkable. And we've had the good fortune of working with a few people who actually will walk with you um, and will take it on despite the fact. See, one of the challenges can be, success. You know, someone says they want to do something really amazing and they really want to do something really amazing so their business or their project can be successful. If it becomes very successful based on certain promises to people, they get it in the bag and then suddenly they're not as inclined. So we try and watch out for people who actually seriously do want to do it. Um, calling people out on that particular thing is not, you know, as I said to you earlier on, that thing of outrage, you've got to be careful that you don't call someone, you know, and how serious are you, you know, and do you really have that creative desire to do it? But I think you get better at reading those things and we've got some pretty interesting projects coming up with people who I think are the people that will do those things for a long time. I just look at everything as a canvas and if you get some pretty big canvases, you know, we're talking multiple hectares or something. A big blank canvas. Yeah. 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 Or, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's sometimes it's got some old busted canvases in it and they're a lot of fun. So we've got some interesting projects and Yugi and I talk a lot about it and just say to each other, well, despite how busy we are, is this gonna fit or are we gonna be away too much or whatever? But on the whole, I still think a hugely dynamic, multifaceted, you know, week, month, year. is tremendous for your creative spirit. It's an incredible oil for the machine. And I have the unfortunate sort of side to myself where I love watching documentaries on the best. And like an architect at the moment that I just adore is um, Bjork Engel's and he's a sort of a raconteur and he's beautifully well-spoken and, you know, he just pulls you into this sort of excitement about some big projects, you know, like Hill in Denmark, which is very flat. They have a problem because they're going to build this absolutely gigantic waste plant, but he realises there's a lot of snow there, so he builds a gigantic... A sort of mountain over the waste plant and everyone goes skiing on the snow. And then there's got to be an exit for some of the fumes and things that come out. So they've got these big things that turn the fumes into not being toxic. And he's just not comfortable with steam rising. So he makes it turns into smoke rings popping out of the thing, you know, and they're the sorts of people that I just love so much. I think being kicked around at school and then when I was first in the art scene being ridiculed and, and stuff, I think it's quite good for you because you just turn around and say, well, what's the worst that can happen? I'll absolutely go and hit for the highest possible mark. What's the worst thing that can happen? Yeah. Splat. <clears throat> I've splatted many of times. Yeah. People laughing at you. It just doesn't bother me anymore. It did. Yeah. It really did now I almost take it as a good omen. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Badge of honor. Yeah, totally. Yeah. No, just a good omen. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've been here before as a bit of deja vu. Person laughing at me. I did it. It worked out really well. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah.
0: And what about the painting now, mate? Is there anything anything new or are you just continuing to mine the, I you know, continue, the
1: I, iconic things? I that continue you've been doing? look, I, I laugh about this. I don't tell a lot of people this. I'm music obsessed. Of course from my era, you know, the Beatles and the Stones. As I said, I aim for the top and I'm not saying they're not in the mix, but you get a band, someone like Crowded House, and just, I don't know, it doesn't matter whether you're into Nick Cave. It doesn't matter whether you're into jazz. It doesn't matter whether you're into punk. You're going to tap your feet to, to Crowded House. They've got this certain something about them as a band. It's, it's just this absolutely sort of wonderful crafting of pop music And that's sort of my aim. You know, I want to craft popular paintings. And I know you're not supposed to say that. But I still do get into some of these pretty major collections that have, you know, the bad asses and the the really edgy ones. And may I say it may be the better painters than me, the better artists than me. But I find my way in amongst them, you know, and I sort of always think I'm their Crowded House album, you know. So, and I continue to be that way. Look, you know, why I haven't mentioned them, I've mentioned, you know, music so many times. I mean, ACDC, come on just people always say to me, you know, what's your favourite band? I said, well, right, there's ACDC. And they go, is that the end of the story? I go, no, no, they're from Planet Magnificent, awesome. They're just, they're so unbelievably above everyone else in my humble opinion. And I just love the fact that they're just going to deliver another balls to the wall you know, rock and roll album and in art, you know, it's that. Well, what else you got? Show us something else. I'm really, I love, you know, Angus was saying it 20 years ago. Mate, this is what we do, (laughs) you know. And, you know, hello, you go to an ACDC concert, mate, it's the Thunderdome. The earth is shaking and it's because... People just, you know, they know what they're going to get and stuff. And that's not boring. That's exciting. I love diversity. Absolutely love it. I find diversity, but, man, it rotates around a certain number of things. And as I said, when someone like Angus says, this is what we do, and we're just going to crack out another one of these, it's just, mate, there's something beautiful in that. And as a person that has had so many ups and downs in their life, Mate, that straight line, I find that an incredibly invigorating place to be.
0: Mate, that's a beautiful place for us to wind up and we're more than happy to have your greatest hits.
1: (laughs) Thanks, man. And I must say too, you know, like, you know, someone just said to me before, oh, you know, I hope it's good this afternoon. And I said, well, I think that's probably got something to do with me. I might have a bit to do with that. But can I tell you, I've spoken to a lot of people in my life and, mate, Sometimes all you want to do when you're sitting answering questions or talking with someone is just do the Molly Meldrum uh, um, uh, 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 or just nothing comes out. But you sit with someone charming who's got their own stories and their own thoughts and stuff and the words just come flowing out. So thank you. I knew sitting across from you was just going to be an absolute lovely day in the park. Thanks, (laughs) mate. Thanks, man.
0: Thanks for joining me on the very first episode of The Blank Canvas with David Bromley. I hope you enjoyed that. He's a pretty interesting cat, isn't he? To find out more about David and his work, visit his website, bromleyandco.com. That's Bromley, B-R-O-M-L-E-Y and co, C-O, dot com. Or you can find this link in the show notes. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then please click on subscribe or the follow options on your platform. A review on Apple Podcasts and a rating would make you a total legend. If it's positive, if it's not, then don't bother. Other ways to help are posting a screenshot of this episode on your socials and follow our socials. Insta is the Blank Canvas podcast. We're also on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube as well. Next week's guest is very close to my heart. She's an Australian national treasure and my wife, Kate Sobrano. Until then, have a great week and live large.